Welcome to Humanities Now, the official podcast of the Humanities Center at Texas Tech. We're glad to have you back with us. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Borshuk, Associate Professor in the Department of English and Director of the Humanities Center at Texas Tech. Humanities Now features monthly conversations with members of the humanities community here at TTU. With every episode, these varied voices help us realize the Center's mission, asking out loud, what does it mean to be human, and demonstrating how we can answer that question from so many different perspectives. This coming Tuesday, November 3rd, voters here in the United States will head to the polls for Election Day. Many have cast early ballots already. And so, depending on when you're listening to this episode, you may have already voted yourself. And you may already know who will be sworn in as President of the United States come January, which party now constitutes the majority of the Senate, or the outcome of so many other regional decisions across the country. Elections constitute our most hallowed democratic entitlement. They often enact our weightiest collective decisions and inspire some of our most volatile group antagonisms. Presidential elections, in particular, bring with them a rich set of cultural associations that linger in our consciousness long after ballots have been cast. Think of the metonymic phrases and figures, ranging from whimsical to grave, that remind us of primary seasons and presidential campaigns gone by. I like Ike. It's the economy, stupid. Joe the Plumber, the New Frontier, Willie Horton, Hanging Chad. In the humanities, we're frequently focused on this intersection between a political system's well-oiled or creakily unsteady mechanics and the cultural materials that oil that same machine. What does an outcome tell us about what we believe? What ideological ghosts haunt the decisions a population makes? What narratives emerge to counter the official record? Reflecting once on the American novel's relationship to the country's democracy, Ralph Ellison wrote that a novel could be fashioned as a raft of hope, perception and entertainment that might help keep us afloat as we try to negotiate the snags and whirlpools that mark our nation's vacillating course toward and away from the democratic ideal. This might have been truer in earlier periods. After all, in Ellison's words, during the early, more optimistic days of this republic, it was assumed that each individual citizen could become, and should prepare to become, president. More recently, the philosopher Martha C. Nussbaum has argued for the enduring importance of the humanities as a protection against potential threats to our democracy's endurance. Nussbaum writes, The ability to think well about a wide range of cultures, groups, and nations in the context of a grasp of the global economy and of the history of many national and group interactions is crucial in order to enable democracies to deal responsibly with the problems we currently face as members of an interdependent world. On today's show, we'll put democracy and elections in context through various humanities perspectives. We'll hear from four Texas Tech faculty, a classicist, a visual artist, a historian, and a philosopher, as they guide us through multiple frameworks pertinent to next Tuesday's Day at the Polls and help us make sense of the dizzying and violent ride we've all been on together en route to the day's outcome. To begin, we'll hear from Sid Norroy. 
Sidnor will help us take the long view of American politics by putting them in juxtaposition with the classical political thought she studies. In particular, let's listen to her tell us about crucial differences between the elections in which we participate and their long-ago antecedents in ancient Athens. Hi, I'm Dr. Sidra Roy, a classics professor in the Department of Classical and Modern Languages and Literatures. I study ancient politics and political theory. Election day is coming soon and people all over the country are already mailing in their ballots or voting early. Voting is, of course, one of the most powerful tools we have in our representative democracy, our democratic republic. Sometimes we directly vote on community concerns, but most of the time we're choosing the people we think will best represent our ideas and concerns at the local, state, and national level. Our government structure, a republic, can trace its roots back in time through the Enlightenment and all the way to some of our earliest republics in ancient Sparta, Rome, and Carthage. These early republics balance power between the wealthy few, the regular guy, and some kind of executive or even a king. The democratic element of our democratic republic traces its roots more specifically back to the ancient city of Athens. So why we're called a democratic republic is tied in part to what rights and responsibilities we give to our citizens. In a work called The Politics, the philosopher Aristotle defines the true citizen as someone who has the ability to have a role in the two jobs of government, making laws, the legislative power, and judging and interpreting those laws, the judicial power. He elsewhere says that a citizen of a republic must be able to rule and be ruled in turn, that is, to be active individual citizens and recognize the rights and powers of others and the will of the community, which is sometimes very much a tough balance. Elections remind us of part of our role as citizens as we participate in selecting those who write, enforce, and interpret our laws. Elections might even remind us that getting that position is possible for someone like us. But there are other ways that we can participate that are part of our rights and responsibilities, which we can often also trace back to that early democracy in Athens. The Athenians loved voting. They did it often, and they developed some pretty amazing techniques like voting machines for tallying the vote and keeping individual choices secret. But for them, the vote was, in essence, the final expression of their exercising their citizen rights, and not the only one. And what they voted on and what they didn't might surprise you, but is consistent with what they thought democracy meant. The democracy practiced in Athens was quite different from our modern democracy in that it was direct. But partly, this comes from the civic value lying behind the impetus to form their direct democracy, a value called isonomia, or equality before the law. Equality before the law was achieved in two ways. Equal ability to participate in the making of the laws in that legislative power. And this was paired with the equal ability to judge and interpret the laws by serving as jurors. And also for them, without a formal police force, enforcing the laws by taking their fellow citizens to court. The biggest and perhaps most surprising difference between ancient Athens and a modern democracy is what they voted on. For most administrative positions, like setting the agendas for assemblies or organizing court trials, they instead selected citizens at random, or what we'd say by lot, and they picked a lot of them to do many jobs. The Athenians didn't just believe that anyone could be president, they didn't just say it. They put that idea of fundamental equality between citizens into practice by random selection. The only positions they voted on were those that required special expertise, like generals. Rather, they voted on laws and policy decisions in the assembly, and those assembly days were frequent. In Athens, they also ensured a right called isagoria, the equal right to speak in the assembly. 
So citizens of Athens would have to serve their city for limited terms on a regular basis by being selected by lot, could and were encouraged to attend frequent assemblies, and could claim time to speak at those assemblies on any issue they wanted. Sounds really tiring. But that's just the legislative aspect of their rights and responsibilities. The other main political responsibility that they held very strongly is that their responsibility to serve on juries for trials. And they usually had juries that were huge, 50 to even 1,500 jurors. And by serving on that, they were able to maintain and protect that equality before the law. Athens even passed a law that paid people to be on juries so that they wouldn't have to choose between their livelihood and doing their civic responsibility. And so I wonder if we should, at this election time, think not just about who or what to vote for, but what the democratic part of our democratic republic means, and carry that with us throughout the year. For the Athenians, democratic power had to be exercised to be ensured, in all areas, in participating in the judicial system, in being engaged and informed so they could vote in the assembly, and in remembering to and accepting that they could rule and be ruled in turn. Our representative government gives us a chance to get a break. Athenian direct democracy seems very exhausting. But perhaps we should take our election season to reflect on that deeper ethos behind our voting, isonomia, and what it takes to maintain that. Thanks, Sidnor. This year, 2020, marks the centennial of the 19th Amendment, which announced, The right of citizens of the United States to vote shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or by any state on account of sex. Among the many activists whose work on behalf of women's suffrage propelled American democracy toward that historic change was Elizabeth Cady Stanton. While Stanton died in 1902, nearly two decades before the amendment, she was, for decades, a chief philosopher and tireless leader in advancing women's rights. In a new exhibition entitled Solitude of Selfie, Carol Flukiger pays visual tribute to Stanton, and offers an innovative aesthetic commemoration of 1920's historic amendment. Here's Carol to speak about her work. Hi, I'm Carol Flukiger, Associate Professor of Art at Texas Tech University. I'm honored to have been invited to share my art project, Solitude of Selfie. My artwork is at the intersection of painting, first-wave feminism, and solar energy. The year 2020 marks the 100th year anniversary of the 19th Amendment and the 50th anniversary of Earth Day, two historic events that have shaped my research. Working with sunlight to expose imagery in my compositions, I think of West Texas as the world's largest light table. It is an additive color landscape, more light than land, more horizon than pavement, more sky than earth. In honor of the 100th year anniversary of the 19th Amendment, 1920 to 2020, I worked on a series of mixed media drawings in response to Elizabeth Cady Stanton's 19th century address, Solitude of Self. Working for suffrage her entire life, Stanton believed this address to be her greatest achievement. For me, this address operates as historically significant and personally profound. I was attracted to Stanton's challenge of solitude. Dangerously close to loneliness, solitude suggests independence and renewal. I gravitated toward the beauty found in Stanton's boldness regarding identity and illumination. In addition to the mixed media drawings for this project, 
I created an artist workbook. The workbook idea came from a meeting with Women's Rights National Historical Park in Seneca Falls, New York, in 2017. I was able to meet with a group of historians at the park to show my portfolio. 75 mixed-media compositions contain three layers of information. One layer, Sharpie marker drawings of thrift store objects, a coffee cup, a secondhand shirt, a typewriter, a pair of sunglasses. Second layer, backgrounds that contained Stanton's handwriting. To do this, I digitized Stanton's handwriting and printed it into transparency film, which was then positioned onto drawings coated with light-sensitive chemical cyanotype. All is placed in the sun for exposure to light. When rinsed in water, voila, history illuminated. And the third layer consists of numbers and words drawn into each composition. While I struggled with thinking about how to visually respond to Stanton's 33-paragraph address, I decided to reduce it to one word per paragraph. Words like courage, heroism, and educated were selected as well as words like failure, friendless, humiliation. This third layer stood out to the team at Women's Rights National Historical Park. They saw the 72-year struggle for suffrage in my selected words. For example, they knew that friendships dissolved, the originators died before suffrage was attained, protests continued through war, and imprisoned suffragists staged hunger strikes. We had a discussion about how the portfolio of layered compositions operated like a tour around the historic address, much like a visitor tours around the buildings at Women's Rights National Historical Park. This made me think about how an exhibition catalog could be more like a workbook or Citizen Ranger book. The workbook would contain Stanton's original address, my selected words, my drawings, and my reflective writing. Viewers would be invited to pick their own words, draw their own pictures, and write their own narrative as they toured the historic address. This seemed to fit Stanton's own understanding of democracy, which operated like an invitation for her to revise history. As viewers read, write, count, and draw their way around this historic address, they can ask, what is myself? What is my selfie? What is my solitude? Current iterations of this project push toward themes of environment and sustainability, which makes sense as I live in an environment abundant in sunlight, the world's largest light table, more light than land, more sky than earth, more horizon than pavement. An environment that contains the resources to power both our homes and illuminate our history. Carol's exhibition in Sidnor's remarks help us historicize our current election. In particular, Carol reminds us of the obstacles others tore down to make way for whole populations of voters today. Indeed, no election happens in a historical vacuum. Instead, each contest builds on earlier contexts, both cultural and ideological, that evolve over decades. As a historian, Sean Cunningham is particularly equipped to help us think through these changes and their current relevance. Here's Sean to speak about his research on the history of elections in the lens, partly discomforting, partly therapeutic, 
it offers us on this November's race. Hi, I'm Dr. Sean Cunningham, Associate Professor and Chair in the Department of History here at Texas Tech University. I teach courses and do research on modern American history with specific interests in modern U.S. political history and particularly the evolving and sometimes devolving history of campaign marketing and political culture at the local, state, and national levels, especially in Texas. Now, I'll confess that I've been interested in these topics since I was a kid and have more or less always been, to some extent, a fan of politics, uh, particularly the sporting horse race aspect of campaign competition. Uh, I will also confess that while I know I'm very lucky to have a career that allows me to pursue and share those passions with others, uh, it has sometimes felt more like a curse than a blessing, at least in recent years. I've been fortunate to publish two books on the subject. One was an exploration of partisan realignment in Texas during the 1960s and 1970s. And a second was on the complications of political culture in the Sun Belt, uh, generally defined as stretching from Southern California to Florida since the end of World War II. I'm currently working on a third book, which examines the ways in which state and local Democrats in Texas consciously and proactively aligned themselves with Franklin Roosevelt and the New Deal, particularly between 1932 and roughly 1937-38, and what that says about the history of liberalism's once realized and potential popularity in Texas, as well as the reasons for its subsequent struggles in the state during the rest of the 20th century. Obviously, here in the middle of an election, I could probably say a lot of things about the history of American politics over the past several decades and how what we're seeing this year is in some ways reflective of trends we've witnessed in this country for a long time, while at the same time being somewhat unprecedented. But rather than recap some of the conclusions I've already written about, I'd rather share an observation I made during a recent research trip to the Lorenzo de Zavala Texas State Archives and Records Commission back in September. One of the more important collections I wanted to see on my trip to Austin was the records of former Texas Governor W. Lee O'Daniel, often better known as Pappy. If you don't know much about Pappy O'Daniel or thought he was simply a fictional character from the movie Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Think again. For numerous reasons, Americans today should be familiar with Governor Pappy, who later became Senator Pappy, in one of the more famous elections in state and national history, defeating Lyndon Johnson in 1941 in what was, by almost all accounts, a rigged election. The parallels between O'Daniel's appeal in Texas during the late 1930s and early 1940s, which was an appeal made on the basis of being a radio personality, a political outsider, and a populist voice for anyone fearing the creeping forces of godless socialism, as they would have called it at the time, are striking. Of course, O'Daniel wasn't the first politician to employ such tactics, and nor was he the last, but that's another story. The observation I want to make right now, however, is about the nature of correspondence between O'Daniel and his adoring fans in the late 30s and early 40s. Uh, In short, there was a lot of it. Hundreds of letters, many of them handwritten, poured into the governor's office each week, often written in response to one of Pappy's Uh, regularly scheduled Sunday morning pre-church radio speeches about how God was guiding his administration. Most of the letters that I read praised Pappy. Some didn't, but most did. And in reading the thoughts of private citizens during one of the most tumultuous times in American history, the the Great Depression and, and what was about to be the onset of World War II, one thing stood out in virtually every letter. 
people were scared and they wanted to be heard. Uh, the fears they expressed then uh, sound very much like some of the fears I read about on Facebook today, fears about political opponents and political leaders, uh, fears of opponents, fears for their children and their children's future, fears for the future of the country. Uh, the fears expressed in these letters were almost always done uh, in, an, in what I perceived as an angry tone, but I think a fearful tone, and usually blamed extremists on the other side for destroying the nation. Now, on, on the one hand, in a very strange way, I found reading all of this to be kind of therapeutic. Uh, as much as we like to think that we're living in unprecedented times and that the struggles we see in Washington will undoubtedly result in either a right-wing or a left-wing dictatorship of some kind, depending on your own personal views, I was reminded that this country has always fostered, uh, to some extent, a political culture of othering. Oddly enough, it's, it's nice to know that we're not alone, that this is not the first generation to witness this. On the other hand, the negative spin to my reading of these letters would be to say that our country is, quite sadly, still dealing with many of the same problems Americans faced nearly a century ago. That can seem pretty deflating when you think about it. Either way, I think it's important to recognize that whether we're discussing the 1930s or 2020, it seems plainly obvious to me that Americans want their voices to be heard. We want to be understood. We want someone to acknowledge uh, and validate the fears and worries and anger that we have. And thousands of Texans in the 1930s wrote Pappy O'Daniel. And today, millions of people who might otherwise write an elected official uh, often post their grievances online. And the things people wrote in their letters to Governor O'Daniel were often incendiary, reactionary, angry, and, and frightening to say the least, but the expression was private, a private correspondence between one citizen and one political official. Today, such expressions are often public, pl placed onto social media for all the world to see, and once it's out there, it's out there. Uh, I can't imagine the United States would have been able to unite behind FDR uh, once World War II broke out for the U.S. late in 1941, had all the venom spewed in private correspondence to elected officials like Pappy O'Daniel been made public for all the nation to read and critique, the paranoia and discord would have been, I think, too difficult to overcome, possibly. Future historians have a challenge on their hands in trying to navigate the world of electronic communication. I'm thinking specifically of electronic political communication, from the grassroots as, as well as uh, with, within the halls of bureaucracy. Uh, their reading, future historians' reading of social media posts and emails, millions and millions of emails, will likely require the type of interdisciplinary methodological training that I, for one, don't currently possess. Historians interested in political culture in the future who want to understand the nation's collective psychology and how that psychology shaped the way politicians related to their constituents will likely need to rethink their approach. As someone who hopes to continue researching these things for a long time to come, I suppose that will make me a student once again, and I suppose I can live with that. As Sean remarked, the spread of social media and new technology may be a contributing factor to some of the cataclysmic changes we've seen in contemporary American elections. Maybe no locution has had more hostile bearing on recent political disagreement than this two-word phrase, fake news. As philosopher Amy Flowery tells us next, the anxiety 
that maybe we can't trust the reality being reported for us threatens the very assumptions on which our democratic practice stands. Is there a way for us to coexist and make decisions together with the weight of this epistemological crisis on our shoulders? Here's Amy with a few critical warnings and some advice about how humanity scholarship might still save us. My name is Amy Flowery, and I am Assistant Professor of Philosophy here at Texas Tech. In a healthy democracy, accurate, reliable news is essential. In order to make collective decisions, engage in healthy, rational, informed debate, in order to hold powerful people and institutions accountable, we need access to the relevant information. Without such information, we will have poor decision-making, uninformed debate, and a limited ability to hold the powerful accountable for their actions. In a healthy democracy, news is vital. Much of the information we have at our disposal is inadequate to this task. It is incorrect, incomplete, or irrelevant. But some of it is fake. Fake news is false or misleading information often put forward with indifference to the truth or even with the intention to deceive. Social media platforms and emerging technologies allow fake news to overwhelm our available informational resources. For example, Google's popularity-ranked search engine gives us hits that are based on what it thinks will interest us, not on what is true. On social media, posts tend to go viral if they spark outrage. Nuanced, accurate, subtle articles not so much. Bad actors, politicians, profiteers, bots, algorithms, garner money and power through manipulating our information environment for their own ends. For example, in the three months leading up to the 2016 election, the top 20 fake news articles were shared far more times than the top 20 genuine news articles. The fake news that surrounded the election came from many sources, a profiteer in Arizona, a group of teenagers in Belarus, and a coordinated disinformation campaign from Russia. But fake news isn't limited to the political realm. Fake news about public health, about celebrities, about essential oils and vaccines, all of these thrive in an information ecosystem where news is boosted for its novelty and ability to promote outrage rather than its truth. Fake news is a social and political phenomenon. It generates a crisis of belief. I have described here a kind of information apocalypse, and we might wonder, how should we proceed? Human knowledge is vast and complex, and there is no way we can individually verify everything we believe. We have to rely on other people and technologies for our information. And this makes us vulnerable to misinformation. In my current work, I'm editing a forthcoming volume with Sven Berniker, UC Irvine and the University of Cologne, and Tomas Grundmann, from the University of Cologne. And in it, we pioneer a new research frontier, the epistemology of fake news. Epistemology is a branch of philosophy that deals with the nature and importance of knowledge. We ought to believe the truth. The truth is not enough. We can't just be lucky. We need to have a reliable connection to the world. We need knowledge. The epistemology of fake news is a branch of non-ideal epistemology. We examine the pathology of our current informational landscape. We want to understand the nature of fake news. How does it pose a problem for knowledge acquisition? How does it spread? 
And what, if anything, can we do about it? The answer to the last question involves thinking about two things. First, what structures and institutions are necessary for promoting knowledge and minimizing fake news? And second, what kinds of intellectual virtues should individuals have when consuming information? One key takeaway for everyone is that we must become responsible consumers of information. Don't share posts without reading them. Verify your sources. Make sure they genuinely are seeking the truth. Know the ideological slant of your sources. Take responsibility for what you post. If it's wrong, admit it and take it down. Gently point out when others are spreading false information. As individuals, we can't stop the harm caused by fake news, and we can't stop fake news, but we can take individual responsibility and encourage others to do the same. I'll close with the words of W.K. Clifford, who wrote this in 1877. He says, No man's belief is in any case a private matter which concerns himself alone. Our words, our phrases, our forms and processes and modes of thought are common property, fashioned and perfected from age to age, an heirloom which every succeeding generation inherits as a precious deposit and sacred trust to be handed on to the next one, not unchanged, but enlarged and purified, and with some clear marks of its proper handiwork. Into this, for good or ill, is woven every belief of every man who has speech of his fellows, an awful privilege and an awful responsibility. Well, that brings us to the close of another episode of Humanities Now. I hope as you listen, we're on our way or have been through the peaceful conclusion of this unpredictable campaign. I hope you've voted, but more importantly, I also hope that you've read and reflected beforehand that your choice is thoughtful and informed as all of today's guests would recommend. I'm grateful to Sidnor Roy, Carol Flukiger, Sean Cunningham, and Amy Flowery for sharing their insights. As always, thank you to the Humanity Center staff, Justin Hughes, Tara Okopi, and Callie Watson, and to Tyler Simpson for our original theme music. We'll see you next month.